And suddenly the world became strange and alienating. Nature was no longer friendly. It was something that was potentially terrifying. Hi, this is Eric Bagley in the Rocket FM studios in Stockholm, Sweden. Time now for episode 14 of Corona Crisis, Once Upon a Pandemic, with me and Mark Vandenbosch, who's on the phone line. A little later on in the episode, we'll get to the interview with uh, Professor Kate Brown from the Science, Technology, and Society program at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Kate Brown has recently uh, written an article for the New Yorker magazine uh, called The Pandemic is Not a Natural Disaster. She explores some of the ecological roots, and we'll take that article as a point of departure for our discussion a little uh, later on today, which we also touch upon some of the uh, issues uh, regarding food and food production, something we're going to talk a little bit uh, later on also in the intro together with uh, Mark. But first, I want to talk a bit about uh, the situation here in Sweden and the authorities are starting to once again get on our case just a little bit. Hasn't been harsh at all uh, from the get-go here, but uh, I think they're a little concerned now that they think that people are getting a bit complacent. Yeah, there was a uh, study done uh, in the last week. A thousand people in the streets of, uh, I think it was Stockholm, were asked if they've adapted their behavior in terms of social distancing and if that behavior has changed over the last two, three weeks. And the results of that study show that Swedish people have indeed decided that maybe we've turned the corner or anyway, they've relaxed their behavior considerably. If you look at the uh, moving average, you know, the uh, fatality rate uh, on a seven-day average over the last couple of weeks has been fairly steady. So things are definitely not getting worse, but they're not really clearly getting better either. But all this could be good in the end if we can achieve one of the indirect benefits of this strategy that we've had in Sweden, which is herd immunity. But there's still some concern because there's so much about the corona that we do not know. And I think this is somewhat exemplified by the recent decision by the U.S. military to disqualify any new recruit from serving the army if they have been hospitalized with COVID-19. And this is forever. In other words, if you've been in the hospital because you've gotten sick, you will never be able to serve in the U.S. military as a U.S. citizen. And that's a fairly far-reaching decision, which suggests that the scientific community is quite uncertain as to what the future holds for people who have been infected. Now, what what would be the basis for that scientifically? Is there some concern that, that it could create some other uh, side effects uh, later on? Precisely. In life, One of the things I heard some official talk about was a correlation to dengue fever. Uh, not to say that corona is any form of dengue fever. They're different diseases. However, in dengue, what can happen is that if you've been infected one time and recovered and also had fairly benign symptoms, then the next time you get it, you're going to get a lot sicker. In other words, you cannot develop immunity by having at one time. And I guess there's some concern that corona could turn out to be that type of disease. That would really turn things on its head in some respect, because I think most people, when they find out that they've been diagnosed uh, or has having had coronavirus without having any major health implications in the short term, they're pretty happy because they feel that now they're immune, at least for some amount of time. But now if there is some longer term implications for this, this would certainly uh, make having those antibodies be a little bit of a less moment to celebrate. It would be a dramatic turn of events and, of course, jeopardize the entire strategy that many countries are either willfully or indirectly adopting in relation to herd immunity. Once again, I want to emphasize that this is not factual. These are just concerns that are being raised by some in the scientific community in the United States. 
And it is on that basis that the military has taken this rather drastic action. But once again, not confirmed, but showing the uncertainty. And we really don't know where we're heading with this. It also seems like it's a bit of a precautionary move at this point. And precaution seems like one of the things that uh, you don't hear that much about in this crisis. It seems like something we should be talking about all the time in terms of uh, mitigating the risk. One thing that I've noticed uh, that's become much more of an issue now is the idea of wearing masks. I heard they're passing out 2 million masks in Paris uh, right now to make obligatory for people to wear masks in public. But here in Sweden, that's been another um, issue that uh, seems like the authorities aren't really taking a very strong stand on. They're kind of taking a middle road saying, well, we're not going to require you to do it, but you can do it if you want. There's maybe some benefits, but there's no evidence. But there's this doctor in um, in Hong Kong, I think his name is uh, Ben Cowling, who uh, is saying that uh, this actually is something that would reduce uh, the spread of the infection. But in Sweden... Once again, it seems like Sweden is not going to force people, very few people wearing masks here. I would say it's less than 1% of people wearing masks in public. Not exactly sure why. I don't know why the authorities would make this a point not to take extra precaution, even if there is no evidence of benefit. Why not if it doesn't do any harm? They say that maybe, yeah, when you take the mask off, when you put it on, you're putting your fingers near your face. Okay, I understand that. But it would seem to be the benefits would outweigh the risks in this case, I would say. True. And also there's a whole cottage industry now of craftsmen that are making these really cool looking masks, pimping them up with different patterns. Uh, you have Andy Warhol mask, you have mask with the British flag, you have mask with all sorts of political statements. So it could become a fashion item as well. But apparently in Sweden, we haven't really latched onto that yet. But I, I agree with you in terms of, you know, what, what is the harm in doing so? And this issue of mask has actually been, uh, it's been a rallying discussion for many people uh, on both sides of the issue. And I remember we talked about masks already back in uh, early April, late March. And for some reason, as you say, which is somewhat inexplicable, the uh, Swedish authorities have not really espoused that concept. But we also have to remember, but at the beginning, uh, the WHO organization also said that masks were not necessary. And then suddenly, after two, three weeks, it became a big deal and everybody should wear a mask in the United States, for example, and in Asia. That's been going on for a long time. So, Mark, food is also another issue. That's something that we're going to bring up, uh, by the way, with uh, with Kate Brown a little later on in the episode, uh, food and food production. But uh, you had some takes on this from your own country of yeah. your birth. I call it irony in some sense. There's been a lot of attention given in the United States in particular to potential food shortages. And there there is concern in relation to the meat industry since a lot of meat processing plants have been forced to close because of the outbreak. In France, however, you also have the opposite problem in terms of a very symbolic food item. I think meat in America are things that are associated together. In France, we think often about wine, but we also think often about cheese. And there the problem is in reverse because there's an overproduction of cheese and it's because of the lockdown, people have not been able to, you know, bulk up on, on their cheese supply. And now there's 2,000 tons of uneaten cheese on French supermarket shelves that are in danger of going bad. <laughs> so now the uh, French government is urging its citizens to support the farming community and eat more cheese. That shouldn't be a too hard of a sell, right? The uh, patriotic duty of, of- <laughs> your average Frenchman to go out and eat more uh, fromage, right? More fromage, exactly. And it's sort of... Let them eat fromage. Yeah, not letting them eat cake, was it? Marie Antoinette, right? Let them eat fromage, indeed. Uh, And uh, also the timing is actually good for this uh, admonition in the sense that France is reopening, as are many other countries in Europe. One of the ones that has done it in a very controlled fashion is Germany. They've reopened quite a few things uh, over the last few days, last week or so. They reached this R factor, which is really 
in relation to how many people you can infect if you have corona, which came under the number one, which is sort of a milestone for reopening. However, unfortunately, in the short term, they've noticed in some regions in Germany that the R level went back over one very, very quickly. So it shows that you have to be very cautious in your reopening strategy. The virus can bubble up again really quickly. And speaking of the uh, the R naught, the the reproduction uh, factor for the virus, there was a great uh, explanation last night on uh, Swedish television with this uh, math professor from uh, Stockholm University, Tom Britton, and he's been pretty dire in his predictions of the deaths here in Sweden. We've only had I think three thousand three hundred so far, but his numbers. He kind of readjusted them downwards slightly last night. I think before he's talking between eight and 20,000 total deaths when this is all said and done. Now he's readjusted his projections down to something between eight and 14,000, which still seems quite astronomical considering where we are now after several months and uh, this complacency that we're talking about. We're back to the topic we discussed earlier in this podcast and in previous podcasts is herd immunity. Will it work? Will it not? And that's the bottom line, really. Of course, before a vaccine is available at that point, it's a game changer, but we don't know when the vaccine will be coming. Right. That's a real wild card in all of this, and that remains to be seen. I think it's time now to turn to our guest. Here's Professor Kate Brown explaining some of the ecological aspects of the coronavirus pandemic. What we find is that this isn't the first new emergent disease that has occurred. We've had hundreds of them since the 1940s, since we started counting them. And researchers have found that the most significant factor in the emergence of a new disease is population density. The more there are people, the more there's a likelihood of these pathogens being released from wild spaces or for places where we keep domesticated animals mutating and being able to infect humans. You know, the 20th century, we saw these new emergent diseases mostly occurred in North America and in Northern Europe, where the population densities were really high. That shifted to China in the 21st century, and we've seen avian flus and SARS and now this COVID-19 coming out of China. Um, so it's not particularly a, a specialty of Chinese culture, with what I was trying to say. It's not just because the Chinese have this fixation with eating wild animals. About half of the new emergent diseases have come from big feedlots where either chickens or turkeys, pigs or cows are all smashed in together and they just become farms for flu, reproducing viruses at an astronomical rate. And some of those viruses are really deft and they're selective for virulence in those feedlots. And then they, when they jump to humans, they can have a profound and sometimes fatal impact as we're seeing. So when you say population or when you say density, you mean both density of human populations in cities, but also uh, these concentrations of animals in uh, industrial farms. Yes, they tend to go together. And the more we, you know, press in wild spaces on forests, then we come in close contact with, you know, wild bats and, and things like pangolins. And um, we release those pathogens, too, that come in contact with either animals that, like chickens or pigs that are in feedlots that are close to those wild spaces or humans who handle those wild animals. And it's also a matter of the uh, the cities and spaces that humans dwell bumping up against some of these wild or some of these spaces that were once wild or semi wild or at least not uh, near major population centers. That's absolutely right. And then you know, and then what do we see in the spread of the disease is that it spreads really quickly in places with really dense populations like New York City or 
Chinese cities, you know, Italian cities where people go to big events and pass things around. And, you know, we love, we love big cities and we, we have more and more people on this planet, but we have to figure out a way to conserve wild spaces. And we also, I think, have to think more carefully about how we produce and process animals in these intensified feedlots where, you know, a chicken has about six weeks to live before they're knocked out and chicks take their place. And in that sort of sped up life cycle where, you know, animals are overfed, they're given antibiotics to handle the masses of diseases they get in these dirty feedlots, and then they're killed really quickly, that gives viruses the opportunity to select for virulence. So they they don't care if they kill their host because their host is going to get killed in six weeks anyway. So we get these really terrifically impressive pathogens coming out of these feedlots that get let loose into the world. But I think the other thing that makes this an ecological disaster is that it reminds us that we don't just live on Earth, but we live in Earth, and that the atmosphere around us is filled with things that are swimming by us. It's more like an oceanic atmosphere than it is just you know, empty space. And all around us are things that we've produced and that other organisms have produced. So there are bacteria and there are good viruses and bad viruses and bad pathogens, bacterial pathogens and benign ones and even good ones that we need to live with. Um, but we also have put into the atmosphere little tiny uh, particles of radioactive isotopes and uh, chemical toxins and microbes that have antibiotic resistance that come also out of those feedlots. So I think this is an opportunity for us to think about in a much more detailed fashion and a much more microbial fashion about the world in which we create that then become a part of our bodies. In the New Yorker article, Kate, one of the points you're making is that the story of civilization has been an ongoing reduction of boundaries between species, and that is a part of the reason that we're in the situation that we're in today, not just with this pandemic, but in some of the other zoonotic diseases that, uh, that you've mentioned there. Would the solution to be to recreate boundaries between species, is that uh, one of the lessons that perhaps we should take from this? Oh, no, we can't do that. I mean, the great insights of molecular biology in the last two decades is that we don't really even have a very clear concept anymore of species or of individuals, you know, in that biological sense of an individual, that we can't really tell the difference between trees in a forest because they're all interconnected with one another, but also with microbes in the soil, with fungi, that run sort of like telegraph wires between trees delivering nutrients and messages with the aerosols that trees send out, that the forest itself is a living organism that lives and breathes together. And I think that's a wonderful insight to have, that in a sense we're all very much connected and it's very hard to separate what in my body is is human, is homo sapien, and what is viral and what is bacterial. And what is maybe some other artificial elements that man people have made that have been ingested in my body? I, like I know I have radioactive plutonium and cesium in my body that I've taken up from the decades of nuclear testing and nuclear production that have gone on since 1945. So um, what we've learned scientifically is that there is no separation. I mean, we make these separations between species and, and genuses 
Um, that was a, a way of, of categorizing and organizing knowledge, but it has not much bearing on reality. In some of your earlier books, uh, Kate, you've uh, used the uh, the term modernist wastelands for some of these spaces that have been left behind or somehow ravaged by uh, an accident of some sort, Chernobyl and such. In this case now, where the cities are, where the outbreaks are most concentrated, could you see these megacities of the present perhaps being the modernist wastelands of the future, places that people aren't going to want to live, that these are just inherently too dangerous spaces where concentrations of populations could present the groundwork for future pandemics? I certainly hope not. But here in America, we've we've already gone through uh, cycles where we've uh, abandoned whole industrial territories and cities. The city of Detroit is famous for having been a big populated city uh, producing cars for the world that is now reduced to just a tiny, probably fifth of what it once was in terms of population and hundreds of thousands of empty buildings. The city of Baltimore, near where I live in in Washington, has 100,000 empty buildings, houses of people that nobody wants to live in them. So we've already experienced that deindustrialization and abandonment of urban spaces, and it's, it's a sad trajectory to go on. So I'm hoping that We'll take a look, not just, you know, sort of rush to put a Band-Aid on this, you know, find a, a vaccine for this virus, and then when the next one pops up, find another, you know, sort of patch, but that we'll think about the causes of these problems. We really focus on counting how how much things grow, how strong the stock market is, how much more money people make, how much more things people consume. And I think going forward, we're going to have to think about prioritizing not growth, but quality of life, uh, happiness, health. I mean, I think we need whole new standards of living that incorporate how happy people are, how healthy they are, how much time they have to spend with their loved ones, how long they live, and that if we can recalibrate how we value our lives and how we measure success, I think we can. We won't have to abandon our cities of the future, that people can live in them. People love cities. Cities are wonderful places where people come together. And I, as I say, I would hate to see us having to live like astronauts and avoiding, you know, humans are very social creatures. We love to be in groups together. We love to see other humans. And uh, for the last six weeks here in Washington, D.C., most people have been holed up in their houses or walking alone in the park. And it's been a really sad thing to witness. I didn't expect to ever see that in my lifetime. One of the parallels to this uh, perhaps uh, could be the Chernobyl nuclear disaster that uh, you've written uh, a real uh, landmark book just uh, published about a year ago, a Manual for Survival, a Chernobyl Guide to the Future. Do you see any similarities between what happened in Chernobyl and what started in Wuhan and has spread across the world? Is there anything, any parallels that you could perhaps point to? Yeah, you know, there's been talk in the press about the mismanagement of um, a health disaster, you know, so this is like Chernobyl, the Chinese government covered it up like the Soviets or the Trump administration, you know, has been glossing over these health problems like the Soviets. But the similarities I see, I think, are more universal and are more personal. What happened with Chernobyl survivors is that sometime after April 1986, they woke up to realize that everything around them was possibly contaminated with radioactive isotopes, that they could touch on their hand and fall on their skin, they could breathe in, they could ingest it in their food or drink. And suddenly, the world became 
strange and alienating. Nature was no longer friendly. It was something that was potentially terrifying. And people did the same thing. They retreated to their homes and tried to go out as little as possible. They kept their kids home. Soldiers showed up wearing face masks and PPE suits, special suits, because the world was suddenly alien. And I think now we've all had that experience of that dawning realization that we're no longer as comfortable on Earth as we were before January 2020. And what my hope is, is that after we're over mourning our losses and after we're through this, that we will use this virus as our ally to help us think in a more intimate fashion about all the microorganisms and the tiny things we cannot see but are very much a part of our everyday reality. 6% of human DNA is made up of uh, has viral origins. 90% of the DNA in human bodies is bacterial in origin. We aren't self-contained autonomous individuals. We are um, very much like a net sweeping through an atmospheric sea, picking up everything that we walk through. And our food does the same thing, gathers up all of these organisms that are on Earth. And, and the more we let loose with radioactive isotopes, chemical toxins, virulent pathogens, the more that comes back to haunt us in a bodily fashion. And so I hope that this pandemic will inspire a new kind of environmental movement where we think far more carefully about the things that we put on Earth and issue forth from smokestacks or uh, from our feedlots or from our factories. Professor T. Brown, thank you very much for joining us here on the podcast and really uh, giving us some very enlightened perspectives on, uh, on this pandemic. Thanks, Eric, for your time. I appreciate it. 